0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about efforts in the Americas to reduce urban violence. I've got Santiago Ruby, the Chief Resilience Officer from the city of Medellin. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you
1: for the invitation and hosting us here in Chicago.
0: And also with us is Mario Maciel, the division manager of the Mayor's Gang Prevention Task Force for the city of San Jose, California. Mario, welcome. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for the opportunity. And the third person joining us is Flavia Carbonari, a consultant with the social development department at the World Bank. One of the things that struck me is that if one looks at the 50 most violent cities in the world, if you just look at homicide rates, right, murder rates, and you ask where those 50 cities are, the most violent in the world, 47 of the 50 are in the Americas, are in this hemisphere. And Flavia, if I could start with you, why is it that North and South America are home to this really, you know, devastating problem?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity of being here. I think there's one one thing that we need to mention when when we talk about the rank of the 50 cities. That we also have other regions that have lack of data. So sometimes, although that that is uh, important to bring up. That number because it's real and this is, in my view, one of the top concerns in most of our cities in the in the Americas. Uh, there's also this issue of lack of data, for example, in Africa that we could have had other cities in that list. But um, despite that. I think part of the reason why this is a regional problem, I mean, we have a lot of the the risk factors present in all of our region, right? So gun, the availability of guns, for example, is something that we have all over the region. Um, Of course, there are differences between the violence that you have, the rates of violence that you have in U.S. cities and some in Central America and in Brazil. There is difference, but there are also, in Latin America, for example, cultural factors that lead to that. And we also have the... Segregation, the social exclusion that leads to this in a specific areas, you have that in Chicago and you have that in Brazilian cities and you have that in Medellín. So a lot of these uh, macro factors that we, we experience in different countries, you see them um, all over the region. Um, but there are, there are many factors, it's a very complex problem.
0: Yeah. Any other thoughts on, on what,
1: what creates this pattern in our region? Well, thank you, Brian, again. I, I, I think after three of, of these events, we started meeting here in Chicago actually almost uh, three years ago, and we're back again reflecting on, on this issue. It, it is always a question mark on is culture playing any role there? And um, I'm not saying that in a specific culture, it brings a factor of, of violence, but is but but there are certain uh, ideas inside cultures like masculinities, mm-hmm. and when you see that idea of a uh, macho in in Latin culture, that is also present in in Afro-American, Afro-Colombian, afro brazilian culture. That brings a ground to for violence to emerge, and especially in the most Vulnerable but an amazing network, which is the family. Uh, and once violence emerges in families, it's very hard for you to create a peaceful society. So we have to pay attention in, into these cultural uh, factors that played an important role in terms of, of violence. And of course, in terms of our uh, determination to focus on attending uh, that issue there on the ground, within families, within communities, and that's important to, to really acknowledge and be, and be conscious of that.
3: Yeah, Brian, I would also add that I think there's a, an overlay of, of economics here that seems to perk uh, pop it head out. Uh, many of these countries that are experiencing this, I, I would say, is a manifestation and a byproduct of inequities and, and isms and things that we're not ready to talk about completely, but. Um, their commonalities across this whole region you're talking about. So I I would be – I think it would be far-fetched to, to walk away from that as a, a variable in this whole discussion.
0: One of the things that has been so fascinating for me over the last two days since we've been talking about this is not only there is, is there a major problem, but there also are really hopeful stories. I mean, Chicago, this is obviously – gun violence is a, is a problem that we that we confront here in in our city, and it can feel intractable sometimes, right? Or it's moving in the wrong direction. And, um, you know, all three of you have been involved in successful Efforts, and I'd like to hear a little bit about what were some of those. What were the ways in which you were able to deal with these problems? Obviously, they're incredibly complex, right? Yes. But kind of what are the approaches that you found to be helpful? And I'd love to start with Medellin. It's such a dramatic story. If we go back to you know about 1991, you know it's it's got a, a homicide rate of like 380. Uh, people per hundred thousand, just a, a, a staggering, staggering number. And then, if you look at now, you know, you go from three hundred eighty down to twenty-five, uh, somewhere, somewhere in that uh, neighborhood. in In a period of a, a really short period, right, in twenty some odd years. So, um, Santiago, what what was the situation driving that violence, and why were you able to make such great progress?
1: Yeah. First of all, uh, I think there were many factors, uh, drugs but also inequalities, uh, social, economical inequalities, uh, cultural factors, uh, political uh, factors, lack of, of leaderships, and, and and more than that, the lack of opportunities for, especially for for youngsters to create. Uh, New ways of, of of living and but also proposing a new society. And perhaps that was our first step to understand and, uh, and as Mario was, was saying, that, that violence is the manifestation of, of major and structural issues. In our case it was clearly social and spatial segregation. Two cities divided, and a small privileged society, and a huge amount of our population suffering from, from basic needs. Uh, uh, and when I say basic needs, lack of education, schools, cultural centers, public spaces, transportation, and at the end of, of the day, the lack of, of the ability to to build and construct uh, dignifying lives. Uh, and, of course, that emerged into different forms, and violence was one of them. Uh, and I think that first step helped us to uh, to put together a more integrated and comprehensive strategy, not only in terms of, of, of police and law enforcement uh, enforcement, but saying, what if we really pay attention and we put all uh, all our budget and effort and human resources into bringing better schools, uh, better parks, better transport systems, bring them opportunities, create jobs and at the end of, of three decades we can see the results and and actually without being able to measure most of what we did because we didn't have time to measure it we, we have to just, Go into action and and and, and face uh, reality. and And I would suggest to any any city around the world that we shouldn't look at violence as as the main problem. We should really look at the structural issues behind violence, and they could be very different in different uh, cities. But but everyone has to really figure out what is going on in your society that is becoming violent and, and it is having expressions of, of conflict and violence.
0: That's very helpful. And Mario, you've been in, involved in a sustained effort um, yeah. in San Jose. Um, give us a flavor for what, what the conditions were when you started
3: this work and, and how they've unfolded. Well, you know, Brian, San Jose is a blessed area. You know, we're in the middle of the Silicon Valley, which means the resources are abundant. And with resources mean you can take immediate action. And so, unlike many of my counterparts that come from economically strapped scenarios, uh, we were able to mobilize 26 years ago under a general fund process in a municipality where we weren't dependent on grants or measures or bonds, but an actual true leadership commitment from council and mayor to – put a percentage of the general fund towards the most important issue of public safety. And uh, with that, it's given us the ability to uh, learn through time, Brian. uh, When we started, uh, our city was experiencing it, for its uh, context, a spike in youth violence. And uh, it was unacceptable to the community. And I think there was a good nexus of great leadership and a demanding community, both owning the concept that this was a community issue that Demanded a community response not just an elected official response. We had the resources to come to bear in over 26 years I think uh, We realized that as we were learning lessons and being fortunate enough to have the economy to build out our, our Models that it was incumbent on us to share, you know, California has exported so much of this problem when you talk about MS 13 and 18th Street and it's breeding grounds in Los Angeles and San Jose and all of California and the impacts it has. Uh, sometimes you've got to take your, your blessings and share them. And I really i am grateful to San Jose for not only focusing on itself, but sharing its best practices.
0: Terrific. And I want to get back to that in a minute. Flavia, um, you've worked in this area for years now. Uh, do you have a favorite example of a, a city that you've seen be effective in addressing these problems?
2: I actually, I, I wouldn't say I have a favorite example, and I try to avoid using the favorite examples, and I mean, Santiago and I have known each other for a while, and what I really, I, I appreciate him even more because he's the first one to put all the challenge on the table and say, we still have almost 30 homicides per 100,000, so we have, you know, come a long way, but we still have a lot to do. So I don't have a um, a favorite city, but we actually did a study last year that I think is, very relevant, where we looked at 10 cities across Latin America because you know we have the infamous reputation of being the most violent region in the world, so that also comes with some policy innovations that we have been trying and failing over the same amount of years that we have had this reputation. So we looked in cities, Medellin was one of them, we looked at three cities in Colombia, three cities in Brazil, Mexico, and two in Central America. and. If you don't mind, instead of saying you know the city itself, we looked at what were the trends that they they were able to reach um, a sustained decline in homicide rates over a minimum of seven years. So what we saw was uh, a lot of the issues that we discussed this past two days, first of all, you need political leadership. So you actually need the mayor sitting down and say, this is a priority for my agenda, bringing all the different sectors, education, law enforcement, health, everybody on the table and holding them accountable for a problem that has links to each one of their areas. So It's the teacher in the school that can do a job preventing violence, uh, changing that kid's behavior at that age. It's the health department, it's the law enforcement who is part of the solution and part of the problem. In Brazil, we have 5,000 killings by the police every year. So they are also part of the problem. They are also part of the culture that we need to change, as Santiago was saying before. So, that was one of the first um, trends that we identified. And coming down from the the political leadership, in all those cities, we found mayors that created infrastructure, government infrastructures, that were able to put that agenda forward. So, they created information systems that would look at okay, what are the exact drivers? When are the homicides happening? weekend, what hours, and then we could use that data to actually develop more, policy, more evidence-based oriented policy. That's, that was one thing. Um, they also had partnerships with civil society, with academia to help them evaluate what they were doing. Um, private sector, in many cases, in Monterrey, we saw a lot of private sector engagement. In Medellin, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of private sector engagement. Uh, and then when it comes down to the programming level, in all of these cases, you had a combination of violence prevention and control. So you had both measures. You had And
0: what's the difference between those two? For most people, they hear violence prevention and control, and they're like, isn't that the same thing?
2: Well, actually, we did have an interesting debate this past few days here, and I, I, I'm not entitled, academic, to speak. So I, I'm speaking as a citizen. Good. Um, I don't think... I think you can do violence prevention with law enforcement and you also have the violence prevention, the social violence prevention that we talk about, primary, targeting the whole population, secondary, with at-risk youth, tertiary, with ex-offenders or victims. So I think you can, violence prevention could be everything. Um, When I say control, I'm talking specifically about law enforcement. But in all those cases, we, we saw that the combination of the two in an integrated multi-sector effort was essential. So I think these are some of the trends that we found that I think uh, they played a, a stronger role in one city or another, uh, but they, they were definitely there in all of those successful cases, as we would like to call.
1: Yeah, and, and as Flavia saying, once you realize this is a multi-factor Issue, of course, the, the solutions brings also also multifactorial uh, responses, saying that if you deal with violence, your city most likely will be more prosperous, uh, more competitive, uh, and will clearly be more inclusive, uh, and, and they all integrated by being more inclusive. Your your city become Less violent and more safe and secure is a very difficult point to draw a line where you can just isolate an issue like violence and say, I'm just going to focus on this. There is no way that you can deal with a problem uh, on, on violence and, and, and security if you look it at that. And and the solution will bring you so many other good results for the city that, that we should really pay attention in a more integrated way and also in a more multi-sectorial way. It's not only an issue for the mayor or for police and, and lawyers and enforcement, but it's also also a, a, an issue for private sector, business, for the Chamber of Commerce, for for shop owners, but teachers, but health department, everyone must really be part of, 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 of the solution because we really need to tackle it that way. Otherwise, you're really going to fail.
3: And Brian, I, you know, I think that multifaceted approach was finally accepted, you know, the the juvenile ju- or the justice approach to this this issue uh, was the mode of operandi until arrest, people, in, get yeah, people off the streets, exactly, lock them up. Sir. Until enforce, you know, the epiphany from law enforcement to finally come out with that slogan: We can't arrest our way out of this situation was the first epiphany we needed, so that they could open the partnership doors to the rest of us that had all the services that were truly going to be needed to have an impact on society.
2: And we need that translated into Portuguese.
0: (laughs) That's that's a great place to go, because I want to talk about this issue, and Mari referred to it. about sharing ideas, right? We talked about, you know, this is a hemisphere, bringing people from around the hemisphere um, together. You know, when I told people this is a conference we're gonna have, one of the reactions I got from many people was, really, isn't every city so different that uh, they have to solve these things on their own? So you all, you know, are experienced in this. What is the benefit of people from across the hemisphere talking to each other, cities talking to each other, us thinking about this a hemispheric way? What are what are some examples of, of what that does for us in trying to solve these problems?
1: Well the most obvious one is like why to wait to become like Medellin thirty years ago if we know what happened then? <laughs> don't. So don't don't do that. And and saying that don't Keep yourself forgetting social exclusion, economical exclusion, uh, letting communities uh, or leaving communities behind in terms of all those basic needs. Because sooner or later, you're going to deal with issues of violence, conflict, and and the eruption of serious, serious and major, major uh, challenges. So don't wait. Don't wait because it's going to happen. And, and that's the first lesson. Don't, don't wait and, and really work hard on that and, and work in a more integrated
3: way. And, and those that would say that the countries and the cities are so different that, you know, how could they convene and have, you know, any sort of efficacy. Uh, I'd have to come back to the human factor. I mean, what are we talking about? We are all the human race. And if we really take a look at things, we have more similarities than dissimilarities. Yet we want to focus on the dissimilarities, whether it's language or the skin color or whatever the case may be. But if you can keep that common humanity lens on it, then uh, it's uh, it's a moral imperative. It's incumbent. It's the due diligence work. We need to help each other. Where there's only one planet.
1: Yeah, and we're talking yeah. about lives. Yeah, I mean, this is this human is life. Human lives. We're not there talking is. about assets or roads or buildings. We're talking about lives, dreams and aspirations, and we have a a duty to protect them and let them realize their own project.
2: Yeah, if I I may add, um, in my work at the bank, sometimes I have dealt with some resistance when you go to somebody and say, you know, I've seen this program in Chicago and it worked really well. And people looked at you and like, well, it's Chicago. You know, we don't have their money. We don't have the institutional capacity, which is true in many cases. But then I always use the argument that the same way that I was talking about the trends when it comes to solutions, the drivers, there are some common factors that you always see. What is a global trend? I mean, it's always male youth. There are the the large majority of the victims and the perpetrators of crime Uh, race in Brazil and in the U.S. I mean, in Brazil, 75 percent of the homicides are the victims are Afro-descendant. The same thing in the U.S. So. You have a lot of the, the factors are common, so you have the concentration of crime in very specific to the street level segment. Uh, one example I, I used in Brazil when they were saying this, I said, you know, this neighborhood, Engle, I think it's Englewood, Englewood. but you say it yep. in Chicago, yep. has a higher homicide rate than Salvador de Bahia in Brazil. And which is greater than what is in Mexico. So we do have similar context. And w- when you narrow down and look what's happening there, you know, the drivers behind that violence, they are very similar, too. So we do have common realities sometimes, of course, that when we have this learning exchange, we talked about a lot of this today, you have to take into account the difference and to adapt the programs, that's very, very important. Uh, but I think that doesn't mean you can learn from each other and you can see what worked in your city. And so I think this is um, one of mo- the most exciting things I've experienced in, in this work is the exchange we have with people in the ground, the people studying, so. Um, yeah.
0: And do you have an example, or do any of you have an example of either uh, something that you learned about from another city that you then tried, modified and tried at home, or something that you've done that you've shared and someone has uh, – another city has picked up and successfully implemented?
1: Oh, yeah. We have many of them. And, and actually, when we came here three years ago, we start uh, looking at an amazing program, BAM, Becoming a Man. BAM, Becoming uh, a Man.
0: It's a Chicago-based yeah. program, right?
1: And, and, of course, the first principle of, of knowledge exchange and experience exchange is you can't just – translate what you do in a city and, and implement it in another city the same way. It, it has to be an adaptation process and, and, and trying to contextualize your your implementation. But clearly, when we saw BAM here... We saw a great potential, and later on, we were implementing a very similar uh, program there. And we took also cure violence, the interrupters approach, and is working in Cali. Uh, we look at it in Medellin, and, and the importance is is a bilateral process of learning because the way we we learn on on BAM and cure violence, and we adapted in Medellin, then Chicago has the ability to think and say. This is a new program. This, this has new elements, and now we can bring those elements back to Chicago and and re-engineer what what we have designed,
3: and and it works like that. Brian, there's also you know there's a programmatic exchange and and that knowledge base, but as many of these cities and countries are in their infancy stage, uh, cities like San Jose that obviously don't have the same violence context as some of these areas we're talking about does have structural structures in place, leadership uh, structures in place, sustainability models that have kept us in play for 26 years. And some of that is what needs to be learned. You can't come just and implement projects if you don't have the right structure. And so who do you want to learn from? Cities that have had structure that have lasted six mayors, seven police chiefs, 26 years and not thrown out like the baby in the bathwater, uh, because you need structure as much as you need, and you need governance as much as you need programs and resources.
2: And I think we also, one of the most in- most important things when we are having this learning experience is also learn from the mistakes. Yeah. So this is why this kind of gathering, when we come together, it's very important because we are open about it. It's not selling the good experience. So I was telling some of our friends in Chicago that uh, I saw a presentation last week by a, a World Bank colleague about an, update, an adaptation of BAM that they did in Mexico. And they did change a lot of the the program specifics. For example, they, they didn't have resources to hire master degree uh, professionals to be the tutors. They had to use the teachers.
0: Cool. And, and in case people aren't familiar with BAM, yeah, could you just uh, really quickly kind of what the basics of BAM are? Just okay. so people can follow this story. <laughs> I hope
2: my Chicago colleagues won't, won't be mad at me for not saying it correctly. But BAM, I think that the, the key component of BAM is that it offers cognitive behavior therapy to youth, at, in at schools in Chicago, and I know that they have other components, but that's the main um, activity that they do to change kids' behaviors, right? Uh, so in in Mexico, they tried to do that, but they couldn't hire people, so they used the teachers. There were a lot of so
0: the implementation people kind of professionals who could provide that kind of therapy and yeah, training, they right?
2: trained the teachers in school to do that. Um, it was a much more uh, the budget that they had it was it was it was much less expensive, and they also did an evaluation, and the results weren't really good. Uh, and it was great to see a presentation, you know, a very honest presentation, saying we did all these adaptations, this didn't work, this is what we learned. And one of the key lessons they had there was that okay, we designed this program in Washington, we didn't take into account the specificities of. The local communities, the school, so that next time they try to redesign the program, take into consideration the challenge they had on a day to day, the extensive hours, no incentives for the teachers, etc. And now they are redesigning with the school communities. So I think that kind of sharing is also very interesting when you try and you failed. What to have this this very honest exchange about our. Experiences.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I'm hearing in this is the importance of local translation done by the local people on the ground, right? That's such a great example because oftentimes we think you develop a model, somebody kind of systematizes it. It's in a book. It's written down somewhere. And all we have to do is carry it out and say, do this, do this, do this. And I think one of the things that I've heard, and I'd be curious if this is right, is the importance of the local folks making it their own and not just having imposed on the outside. And why is that important? I mean, one could think, we got the solution. Just do this. So why do
1: you need that? Well, a straightforward answer to that is who knows better the factors and realities than communities and and people who face the issue on a daily basis, teachers, mothers, youngsters. I mean— it's, it's very hard to, to really think on an external factor to be so effective when there are really, really great human resources that are able to deal with it. So I think one of the main lessons that, that we learn here is we don't really need to, to go somewhere and, and tell people what must be done. I think the ideal scenario for this is really, really capture that value there in the communities and really give them capacities to be able to solve their issues. Because let's, not, let's be honest, I, I mean, we have failed communities as, as a state public servants, and they have done something trying to figure out ways of solving issues. And they're not going to wait for the for for the state or of public officials to go there. They they're going to continue doing it. So let's help them to to get and strengthen their capacities to to continue what they do well.
3: Yeah, Brian, you know that dynamic tension between uh, drinking the Kool Aid of evidence-based methodologies <laughs> and and still keeping a hold of innovation, which. Uh, those programs that became evidence-based started with innovation. They weren't born evidence-based, you know. And so uh, I think you got the right group to ask this question because if you had certain researchers in the room, they would say the only way you get comparable and transferable results is when you use fidelity to the umpteenth degree. And uh, But I've also seen a softening there where they've now taken into consideration that You can't develop an Afrocentric program in Chicago and want to bring it to Latin communities in San Jose, California and expect without cultural shifts and and tweaks. And so I, I start seeing the researchers be open to modifications when before it was it's our way or the highway. And I think there's a fine medium there between honoring research, rigorous research and evaluation and replicability and the concept of fidelity, but giving yourself the leeway to tweak it to work for you.
2: And if I may add one sentence to that I think sustainability comes with ownership if you don't have that it it will not last and one of the things that I was very impressed the first time I came to Chicago was to see exactly what you you just said about the researchers commitment to the, the results of the policy. It's not about, the, and I'm talking about the Chicago Crime Lab, which is the one that we have worked with, but I, it's a model that I don't know of any similar one in Brazil or, or Latin America, of people that are, are actually doing the research not just to get published, but they are actually interested in the matter, in the, okay, what do you need from me to help you implement better and get better results? So I think that's very to have more the academia and the policy world talking better to each other, because in, from the policy perspective, you, you also need uh, policymakers willing to share data, understanding why you need to share the data, why it's important to invest in evaluation, wh- how that will fit into better policymaking, more f- cost effective policies at the end. So I think we, we still have a, a lot of work to do <laughs> in that area.
0: Well, it's Chicago that po- gets pointed to as, as its own big murder problem. I appreciate the shout-out uh, to our friend Rosanna uh, Ander and her organization, the University of Chicago Crime Lab, um, that Chicago also is a place that's not only creating problems but trying to to be a, uh, a force in, in solving the problems. One of the things that's so striking to me as I listen to you. There was a 12-year-old girl um, killed in Chicago. She was visiting from Michigan to go to her favorite cousin's high school graduation and a stray bullet um, hit her and, and killed her. And I think we're used to, and, and this brings it home, right? These are individual lives that are, are are extinguished, incredibly painful. And the news gives us these accounts and we hear way too many of these uh, of these accounts. And I think one of the things that is inspiring when I talk to you all is this sense of hope and a sense that these problems aren't intractable. And as we close, I would just like to ask each of you, what gives you the greatest sense of hope in terms of making progress on this really, really challenging problem?
1: I will quote my grandma who used to say, if violins is a, a non-rational a result of resolving conflicts. Why are we expecting rational solutions to to become a, a, a peaceful society? So clearly, love and care brings a perfect ground to 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 bring families together and to to become a more protective environment. So that's that's the first principle. It it won't come from universities, academia. It will come from our hearts. It it needs to be love and care from each other. we human beings. And then you can build whatever you want.
3: Brian, a a mentor of mine and a well-known individual, Jack Calhoun wrote a book called Hope Matters. And uh, I can tell you it really does. And there's nothing more dangerous than, excuse me, a teenager without hope. You know, what would stop me? from committing a heinous crime or robbing you. If I had no hope to make it past 18, to be able to create a family of my own. So when you talk about hope, it moves me because without it, we're screwed. I mean, sorry to get street on you like that, (laughs) Brian.
0: This is the real world.
2: Well, what I think it gives me hope is people like him who went up the first time. I met, I heard your story, which is very moving, and like you, you know, of so many people that were able not only to overcome their own challenges, but they became examples and fighters, it's not the best word for this, but um, promoter advocates of this, you know, of peaceful society. So I think first you have a lot of people committed to this. We have already seen a lot of places that were able to around, Like Medellin is, is one of them. So that also gives me a lot of hope. And as Santiago was saying, you know, and at the end of the day, I mean, even the worst criminal has a mother, has a kid. Has I don't think anyone actually wants to live in a, in a violent society. The, the drug lord in, you know, in the favelas in Brazil, he also wanted his kid to be able to walk around safely. So I think at the end of the day, I mean, we, we all still want that. Uh, and we have a lot of good people uh, with the heart and minds in the right place, trying to to change things. And we have seen a lot of things that have worked. So we know th- there are, there are things that work. We still need to work a lot to learn more about it. So we know some of the evidence, but we know that things can be violence can be prevented uh, and reduced. So I think that gives me a lot of hope. And I think that's why we are. It's. It's a topic, as we said in the beginning, that it's you know at the end of the day we're talking about people, literally. Like that's why every other policy issue to me, which I also care about, comes second because if we need to care about our lives first, right? So I think that's why when you have people committed to this, it's it's a very passionate and hopeful um, topic and area. <laughs>
0: A great place to end this conversation, obviously an important issue that we'll talk about uh, again. But I just wanna say, Flavia, Mario, Santiago, thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience. No, thank
2: Thank you. Thank thank you you for having us.
0: (laughs) And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment and tap on the subscribe button on your podcast app so that you can get new episodes as they're produced you can find us under deep dish on global affairs wherever you listen to podcasts and if you think you know someone who would like this episode please take a moment to tap the share button and send it to them as well if you have questions about anything you heard today or if you want to know about upcoming episodes in advance or submit questions for upcoming guests please join our facebook group deep dish on global affairs This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.